Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As states go after Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family for their roles in the opioid epidemic, we'll look at the role they play in the politics of our region. Money doesn't buy political outcomes, but it does buy access. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We're also going to look at how the Sackler's stake in a Vermont ski resort is causing controversy. Plus, as seas rise, how can Provincetown prepare? When people talk about climate change, they're mainly talking about survival. But they're not thinking as much about what will happen after the crisis. Will we ever recuperate the cultural heritage that is lost to these changes? And for visiting presidential candidates, goodbye diners and pancakes, hello craft breweries and IPAs. She tends to enjoy the grapefruit-flavored beers. I'll let voters decide whether that's a good or bad thing. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Attorneys general in New England are taking the lead in lawsuits that are going after Big Pharma. The state of Connecticut is leading a suit which includes 44 states, including Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Vermont, to hold generic drug manufacturers responsible for the rising costs associated with pharmaceuticals. Here's Connecticut's Attorney General William Tong. We have emails, text messages, phone records in-person meetings, cooperating witnesses that demonstrate conclusively and without a doubt that the major drug manufacturers, including the largest generic drug manufacturer in the world, Teva, are openly and brazenly colluding on price and they're dividing up market share. The lawsuit alleges a conspiracy that fixed prices on more than 100 generic drugs, driving up prices as much as 2,000 percent. Now, in Massachusetts, it's not the cost of drugs that Attorney General Maura Healy is looking at. It's the role of one company in the opioid epidemic. Purdue Pharma and the family that owns it, the Sacklers, are being sued for profiting from the harm being caused by the company's opioid, OxyContin. The suit also gives us a window into how Purdue Pharma allegedly manipulated legislation at the Massachusetts State House. The company believed Beacon Hill lawmakers could make or break their profits, and Healy alleges the Sacklers and Purdue bragged about killing bills and writing a law to increase sales. WBUR's Christine Wilmson has been examining the company's influence and power on Beacon Hill. Former Representative Robert Fennell remembers a firefighter who always stopped to eat at his diner in Lynn. One morning he came in with his daughter and sat at one of the small tables. It was the first time he actually saw his daughter in a couple of months, and they had a wonderful breakfast, and I was over there, we were talking. It was about 2007, and she was in recovery from opioid abuse. She seemed like she was doing good. Uh, two days later, she died of an overdose. After that, Fennell wanted to make OxyContin illegal, just like heroin. He introduced the legislation several times. They never passed. At that time, people were trying to say it was just new. I mean, you had some overdoses and whatever, but it was, it was starting to become an epidemic, and uh, I was trying to be ahead of the curve. 
recently unredacted documents in the Attorney General's lawsuit against Purdue, and a WBUR analysis of data show Fennell faced a formidable foe behind the scenes. Records from the Secretary of the Commonwealth show Purdue paid lobbyists $886,000 over the past 15 years to protect their drugs. Their lobbyists gave money to local campaigns hundreds of times. Fennell tried to ban OxyContin again in 2013. The Attorney General alleges an internal report shows Purdue focused on ways to kill his legislation. Purdue acknowledges they fought policies to limit the drug's use. Fennell had no idea until I told him. Hmm. Uh, this is the first I heard of that. I was never approached by Purdue Pharma or any of their lobbyists uh, concerning my piece of legislation. If they, they killed it, they killed it um, without me knowing about it. At that point, these kids would on this drug and they would die in. That's former Senator Stephen Tolman, now president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO. He also tried to restrict OxyContin, and his bill also went nowhere. He says Purdue had too much power. When you have a lot of money, you can buy the lobbyists and you can convince people. He recalls meetings with Purdue representatives who tried to convince him. They used to come and they'd bring all their lawyers and they'd be cute. And, oh, this is medically necessary. And they'd stand like they were saving people's lives. And the only people that were getting in trouble were those who were misusing it. Even the Sacklers themselves kept tabs on legislation. Attorney General Healy alleges Richard Sackler, a board member, alerted staff that Massachusetts wanted to limit how long someone could take OxyContin. Staff promised a strategy to defeat it. Healy says it's one example of Purdue's reach in Massachusetts. Companies are allowed to lobby. The focus of my office, however, is to show the extent to which Purdue and individuals who we named in the complaint were attempting to influence or impact sales and business. Purdue hired local lobbyists Michelle McGee and Charles Stefanini. Stefanini reported to the state in 2013 alone he tracked 112 bills for Purdue. Since 2002, Purdue Associates gave legislators, political groups, and causes at least $410,000 based on a WBUR analysis of state campaign finance data. The donations came from lobbyists, their spouses, Purdue executives, and the Sacklers themselves. That may not seem like a large amount, but Massachusetts lobbyists can only give $200 per politician. Purdue representatives and their lobbyists gave money more than 1,500 times while working for the company. Robert Josephson, a Purdue spokesman, says the company didn't direct lobbyists to donate to policymakers. They're not just our lobbyists. They represent a number of other companies, and I would say you would, you would have to ask them what their motivations are. Neither McGee nor Stefanini would discuss their work with Purdue. McGee says her contributions are personal. Stefanini says he gives money to elected officials he works with. To suggest campaign contributions are related to one specific entity is just patently false. Records show Tolman, who was trying to restrict the company's drug, received $1,600. Wait, I don't know. Did I get money from them? Did I? You checked that? I did, huh? Mm -hmm. Ooh. The lobbyist also gave money eight out of the last 10 years to the leaders of the joint committee that deals with substance abuse. Money doesn't buy political outcomes, but it does by access. That's Pam Wilmont, Executive Director of Common Cause Massachusetts, a nonpartisan democracy group. Was the decision because they made the best case or was the decision made because they gave the most contributions? 
Purdue modified its OxyContin in 2010 to make it harder to crush and snort. Three years later, they promoted this new abuse deterrent formula to legislators and claimed it would prevent overdoses. But the AG says their new product did nothing to prevent the most common cause of abuse, swallowing the pills. Senator John Keenan and other legislators introduced similar bills that require pharmacists fill opioid prescriptions with the abuse deterrent formula. He says Purdue representatives never contacted him, but he knew their motivations. We were aware of them trying to get the patents that would allow them to be the only ones offering an abuse deterrent formulation. They may have looked at it as, oh, that's beneficial because they maybe have the market cornered, but we were looking at saving lives. Attorney General Healy alleges internal emails reveal Purdue took credit for writing parts of the legislation. That was an example of Purdue's efforts to further sell and market its opioid products. While they were labeled abuse deterrent, they actually potentially had the impact of even more doses. The bill passed unanimously. Purdue claimed it was the first in the country. In court documents, the Sackler state they played no role in swaying legislation. Josephson with Purdue says the company had no financial motivation to push the law and that Purdue made a positive impact in Massachusetts. Not all of the effort was to look at, you know, as you put, killing legislation, but also looking to help move legislation forward that would help address the opioid crisis. For Senator Keenan, he now sees Purdue through a new lens. Reading the complaint and knowing now that as we were doing things they were watching, um, you know, there's a David versus Goliath thing to that. And we were David, and it was interesting to learn how much Goliath was watching what we were doing. There are more than 1,600 lawsuits against Purdue. It settled one of those in Oklahoma for $270 million. The company states bankruptcy is an option. Healy says that will not derail her case. Purdue is seeking a dismissal. Both sides are expected in court in the next few weeks. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Christine Wilmson. The lawsuit against Purdue Pharma and the family that owns the company, the Sacklers, is bringing more scrutiny to their investments and the affiliation they have with art institutions and universities. One example of the family's wide reach in New England is their stake in a company that owns ski mountains across the region. The Boston Globe's Andy Rosen reported on the impact this is having on one ski community, and he joins us now. Andy, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your article focuses on Mount Snow. First of all, tell us about the mountain and and the town that surrounds it. So Mount Snow is a very large ski mountain, one of the biggest places you can go that's relatively close to Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts, because it's right in the southeastern corner of Vermont. And it is really the economic center of that part of the state where about 90% of the economy depends on jobs from the mountain in some way. You know, there are people who work there, but there are also people who maintain properties. There are people who uh, deal with rentals. There are people who do landscaping for people who aren't around to take care of their winter homes. So it's a place that really depends on Mount Snow. Yeah, the sign as you enter town is home of Mount Snow. I mean, it's it's a really big deal for the town. It really is, and they they truly depend on it. And, you know, the ski industry has undergone a lot of change in recent years, so a healthy mountain there is very important to that part of Vermont. So how did the Sackler family get involved in in the ski mountain? So there have been a series of complicated transactions. A lot of it, they just bought stock. They are, the Sacklers and affiliated companies own about 13% of Peak Resorts, which owns Mount Snow. And they have undergone several economic transactions with the company that have left them with 
avenues to exercise more control over the company through stock purchases, warrants, things like that. Okay, so, so they have even more clout than, than they had in the past. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. So they have lent money to the company, Peak Resorts. It owns several mountains, all the way from Missouri up to New Hampshire, where it owns several other mountains. And Peak Resorts borrowed money from the Sackler family's companies a couple times, once uh, to uh, support uh, the finances for some improvements at Mount Snow, and once also to um, buy some mountains in Pennsylvania. So what that did was it gave them some additional preferred stock, which gives them power over the company. And it gives them an avenue uh, if there were to be some very large increases in stock value and the family was willing to spend a good amount of money to actually buy what could be a majority of the company. So is the Sackler family name being attached to uh, this company that owns several resorts in our region? And specifically, as you reported on Mount Snow, is the Sackler family name causing problems for for the town and for the business? Well, I think it's just an interesting debate uh, in that area because the town doesn't really have any choice. The people who work there don't decide who owns the mountain. The people who ski there don't decide who owns the mountain. So I think people are just trying to sort of reckon with the idea that their fortunes are tied with this family, that they have some questions about their business. They have questions about the business because of some of the lawsuits that have come out in Massachusetts and in other states. But as you look a little bit deeper in Vermont, New Hampshire, many of the places where the ski business is a big business, there's also a terrible opioid epidemic, maybe as bad as any other place in the country. Is that influencing how people think about the Sacklers' involvement in Mount Snow? I think that's influencing how people are thinking about the opioid crisis generally. In a small town like this, even one death is very touching to lots of people. Everyone knows everyone. And I talked to lots of people in town who you know, knew specific people who had had overdoses, and that really affected the way that they thought about the crisis. You know, Everyone is closer in a small town. Uh, one of the, the comments that, that we saw in a, in a Facebook group discussing this issue of Mount Snow and the, the ski mountains owned in part by the Sackler family, a commenter writes, how about we make the communities in peak areas a success despite who happens to have invested, not tear down the economic fabric to spite one investor. Any actions, whether positive or negative, are more critically felt by those living in that community. I'm wondering, uh, Andy, about about comments like that. It's so interesting when you have a controversial family that has done large-scale philanthropy. It owns a series of businesses that are really important to the economic fabric of small towns. I'm wondering how much you are hearing from people that say, you know, it doesn't really matter who owns this. It's just really, really important to our local economy that this succeeds. Yeah, I think that was a huge amount of the sentiment that I heard while I was in Vermont. A lot of people depend on that mountain regardless of who owns it. And to be honest, people are very happy with the management there. They've made a lot of improvements. They've spent uh, about $50 million on building things there that have extended the length of the season and increased the things that people can do while they're there. So people aren't just – this mountain doesn't matter to people just in spite of this company. They they like this company, and I think that's bought some goodwill for peak resorts there. And, you know, there are also a lot of people in Vermont who have looked at these lawsuits and have drawn the conclusion that, you know, this is a family that was selling a legal regulated product, and maybe the concerns about the opioid crisis are best pointed elsewhere. A last question for you. I'm wondering if there's any thought, though, 
because the Sackler name has in some uh, ways become a bit radioactive if they are thinking about getting out of the business, whether or not the Sackler name is going to be attached at all to peak resorts or other businesses like this in the ski industry? You know, I wasn't able to get a comment from the Sackler family on this issue. Um, I think they... If they're an investor, they presumably want to do the best thing that makes the most sense with their money. And uh, if it makes sense to invest in this and they can get good returns, presumably they'll continue to make these investments. Andy Rosen's a reporter for the Boston Globe. You can find a link to his article, The Sackler Family's Involvement in Mount Snow Stirs Controversy, at nextnewengland.org. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. For more information on the lawsuit against Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, visit nextnewengland.org. And subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can just search Next New England. There you'll find an archive of all episodes of Next, one of which includes an interview with ProPublica's David Armstrong about this lawsuit. As baby boomers age and the workforce shrinks, there may not be enough people or money to care for all our elders. In many ways, in Vermont, that reality has already arrived. Now a small but growing number of families are opening their homes to strangers, elderly strangers who need a lot of care. Vermont Public Radio's Emily Corwin reports on how this works and why. For eight years, 71-year-old David Calderwood lived at Scenic View, a residential care facility. There, staff helped him with medications, bathing, and meals. Then, the company that owned Scenic View announced it would close. And at first, Calderwood couldn't find a place to go. Finally, he decided to move in here. Come on, go outside. Go. This is Crystal and Todd Abel's house. Today, Calderwood sleeps in a room with walls still turquoise from when it belonged to their now-grown daughter. This is like my own family. Calderwood is not related to the Ables. He's part of a program in Vermont called Adult Family Care. Other states have similar programs. Vermont's works a lot like foster care. Families, like the Ables, can have up to two residents move into their home. The residents pay room and board. The state pays the family between $80 and $160 a day per person based on the complexity of their needs. The money comes from the same Medicaid dollars that would be going to a long-term care facility. Only this program costs the state less. Right now, there are only 136 Medicaid recipients enrolled. That's a tiny fraction of the nursing home population. But the program is growing fast. It's definitely more money than I was making before. Crystal Abel cares for Calderwood and one other gentleman. Although some home providers have nursing degrees, Abel has never worked in health care. Before this, she worked at the local Dollar Tree and in a school cafeteria. It's so rewarding, and I'm so thankful that we ended up doing it because I absolutely love it, and I love our guys. They're part of our family. We, you know, we just got back from vacation in Florida, and we took them with us. Abel helps Calderwood with bathing and meals. She divvies up his 30 prescriptions, makes sure he uses his oxygen machine, and drives him to the doctor. It's a 24-7 job, except for when the guys go to day programs a couple days each week. Calderwood says for him, at first, the whole thing seemed pretty strange. I was kind of withdrawn when it came to coming here. and I kind of just sat there 
It was a little rough. I mean, he was very quiet. Abel says Calderwood took a while to warm up. She admits her family's loud and mischievous. Do you, like, tease each other or? Oh, yes, all the time. (laughs) You get in on the teasing? Oh, my God, yes, I love to tease. Seriously, though, Calderwood says he's happier here. There is an openness here, a give and take, which I never had before. It's more living like I used to on my own. Increasingly, this program is serving a population that desperately needs nursing home alternatives. That's Medicaid recipients with expensive needs who often can't find care. Sean Londergan is the long-term care ombudsman at Vermont Legal Aid. He calls the program a two-sided coin. The upside? Life in a home can be less restricted and more meaningful than life in a facility. But he says there's also a downside. There's no, you know, a lot less regulation uh, on adult family care homes. The homes are not licensed, although providers do have to pass a background check and a home inspection. A review of records by VPR did include allegations of abuse and neglect in a handful of cases. The Vermont Department of Disabilities, Aging and Independent Living would not say whether any of the allegations had been substantiated. Megan Tierney Ward heads up adult services for that department. She says the state contracts out oversight of the program to 15 private agencies across the state. Those agencies interact with both providers and residents. They have a minimum requirement of seeing somebody or at least um, having contact with them every 30 days at a minimum. Often it's more than that, um, and they have to at least see them face-to-face every 60 days. Crystal Abel describes her caseworker as, quote, phenomenal. Still, she says, she had no idea the state requires an orientation with a nurse or six hours of training every year. Tierney Ward says she's looking into that. Abel also says she thinks the state should mandate surprise visits. You know, even for us, even though my guys can talk and whatever, um, it doesn't mean that I'm not sitting there. If you tell them anything, you're going to be, you know, no dinner for you. You know, so I do think that they should do some more surprise checks. As demand for this program grows, one challenge will be convincing ever more families to open their homes while also making sure they're all safe. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Emily Corwin. Coming up, we'll stop for a quick beer with presidential candidates. But first, how Provincetown, Massachusetts could adapt to rising seas. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Rising seas are a frightening reality for coastal communities, including many historic towns that have been built right to the water's edge over the last few centuries. 
Provincetown, Massachusetts, right at the tip of Cape Cod, is a perfect example of that. But what happens to the character of a place when sea level rise forces it to adapt and change? Architecture students at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design took this as a challenge in a course called The Future of Provincetown. It's led by Professor Preston Scott Cohen. We had him in studio along with one of his students, Adam Sherman, who's also a Master of Architecture candidate at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Now, Cohen knows Provincetown, its quirky charm, and its unique terrain well. He started by describing the main artery of the town, Commercial Street. It's a very gently curving crescent. But what's special, one of the things that's really special about it is this is a street with buildings on both sides. Some of us in architecture call that a double-loaded street. But anyway, what happens is you've got all these buildings cheek to jowl, very intimately you know, bound to this street. And it's a super important street. This is where the festivals, the, the carnival takes place, the all of the commerce and social life, the this is a street of spontaneity. It's the whole life of the place. I mean, people come to Provincetown because of the kind of experience they have being on this street and then that they can go out into nature so so immediately. They can go right out to the beach behind all of the buildings on uh, one side of a street and then they can go in biking and hiking and all kinds of other things in the other direction. The, you know, the landscape surrounding is – Jason in such a beautiful and immediate way. But the the way this is such an intense, small scale, you know, and it's and it's formed so much around the life of this important street called Commercial Street with buildings on both sides. And you know the character of the place. It's so important. It's been painted by artists, you know, again and again. And and our thinking is that when people talk about climate change, they're mainly talking about survival, you know, like how are we going to ha- you know, deal with the, the crisis itself. But they're not thinking as much about what will happen after the crisis. Will we ever recuperate the cultural heritage that is lost to these changes? Can we rebuild it in another way? Can we constitute it in some other, you know, forward-moving way, but that also has a strong connection to it, the past, and and preserve the ability to hold these important social events and continue with these rituals like the carnival in a, in a wonderful way under, you know, within a new shaped, newly shaped city. So maybe describe a bit for us about what sea level rise looks like specifically in Provincetown. Often when we when we see those maps that have been devised to uh, give us a sense of what 10 years or 20 years of sea level rise will look like. We can really start to imagine what parts of our built environment will be subsumed by the ocean. But in this specific case, maybe you can give us an idea of, of what changes when the water rises. Yes. Well, there's, we tested numerous scenarios. There are numerous things that will affect the way the landscape form is reshaped as the water rises. But we did some tests that showed that it's likely that there will be some deep incursions. There will be water that actually invades parts of the city and breaks the continuity of this wonderful artery, this this crescent-shaped street that we've discussed. The other prospect that we confronted is that the houses that are on the seaside of the street, many of those will be on lots that are submerged. So we, we were looking at a really different you know, plan – of the shape of the land and trying to figure out would we reshape Commercial Street 
put the buildings in a very different relationship with it. What we kind of devise, and I really want Adam to talk further about this because he was actually designing one of the projects, is that we thought there were three basic strategies that we could address. We called them defense, offense, and retreat. And they're really different ideas. Offense is um, building out over the water in some way. Defense is, as I said, jetty, you know, some kind of the measures that could try to hold the water back basically in different ways, uh, having to do with reshaping the land artificially to do that, to defend as much of the current condition as we could. And retreat was to actually move away from the water, to reshape the city, pull it back and 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 define a new kind of commercial street that's uphill somewhat from the water uh, and therefore defended in that form. So, you know, they really led to very different design speculations. The students invented all sorts of new, different future province towns, as it were. Mm-hmm. We came up with 13 new province towns to imagine. Well, let, let me talk to Adam Sherman, who who has imagined one of those those future province towns. Tell us about the model you created for a future province town. Sure. Yeah. So my strategy, I think, would fall pretty squarely within the camp of retreat. And so for for me, the idea was there were certain non-negotiable realities of the town that had to be preserved uh, in any future instantiation. And so for me, what that boiled down to was, as Scott had said, the idea of the double-loaded street, the fact that Provincetown is different from other beach towns because it has houses on both sides of its main artery. And so for me, because uh, sea level rise was going to wipe out the, the lower – the southern half of uh, Commercial Street, the idea was to not only move Commercial Street back half a block but also elevate it 25 feet in the air. And so effectively my design had these sort of elevated boardwalks um, emanating out from the town center uh, running throughout the entire town. And the motivation behind that was was twofold. The first being that uh, if we look at the projections of sea level rise as well as uh, the added risk of storm surge over the next 100 years, there's certainly going to be um, a need to completely live on this new level in some respect. But also I, I was kind of thinking about the fact that you know even a strategy 100 years away or 50 years away is still quite far in the future. And so how does the town continue – to go through its daily life in the decades that are, are going to uh, precede kind of a complete abandonment of the ground plane. And so by putting a, a second level of the city right above the first level of the city, it creates a sort of tension or conversation in between the old and the new in the way that can both pay respect to the traditional ways of life within Provincetown as well as speculate about some new types of urban environment that hadn't yet been been seen within the town. The, the commercial street that you build just a block away or half a block away and, and a little bit elevated from the original commercial street, is it meant to be an exact replica? Is it meant to carry the same function but have different sorts of structures? What, what were you envisioning in terms of, of taking what people now know about Commercial Street and transforming it to this new level? It, it's not an exact replica, but it is also not a completely newly uh, authored street. The idea was 
not only were we looking at the character of the urban form in general, but also the character of the individual houses. And so uh, the new structures that I was suggesting that would go along this boardwalk are within a vernacular style. They have the same type of general organization that the houses that are currently on Commercial Street have. But in this case, they're more equipped to effectively be put on stilts and raised 20 feet into the air. And so I think for somebody who's known Provincetown their whole life to see my scheme, effectively what you would have is you you would be able to see that and say, okay, that is clearly different, but there is a respect for the character of the town. And it's not a complete overworking uh, and reworking of every single aspect of how uh, life is along Commercial Street. Scott, a last question for you. As as we think about all of the communities along the seacoast of New England that face in some ways the same threat that Provincetown does, how do you think that the the things that you learned here, the designs that you and your students came up with, how do you think that they can be applied widely elsewhere as as other historic communities say, we've got to figure out whether or not to to attack the ocean or retreat from the ocean or, or try to play some defense? I think, first of all, I want to call attention to how important the form of our cities is in our lives and the relationship architecture has to the form of the city and that it is it's an evolving organic relationship and that sea level rise is a is a radical you know potentially radical a radical rupture uh, uh, it it really tears cities up i mean sometimes and that's a very traumatic thing but it's traumatic as i said not only because of the actual economic you know the actual physical and economic catastrophe that it you know that it it brings but also there is as adam is saying this question of the, the rituals, the, the particular social character of the city, how that you know, has to come back together and, and, and while we have to move the city forward in response to this, I, I think we just – what I really want people to understand is how important it is to be, remain cognizant of that relationship between urban form and architectural form and its effects on our social experiences and, and, and that really is the message that I wanted to kind of – have you know, ring out again because the, the, the kind of attention to the technical solutions to climate change has is, is very important but should not, let's say, eclipse the attention to the effects it has on culture and social life. Have you shown these these ideas to some of the civic leaders in Provincetown? Are they considering any of them? Well, there is a great deal of interest. Um, we are hoping to represent this in some form, perhaps an exhibition. There are numerous people interested in that. They they have not yet really looked closely. We've had numerous people see the designs because they've been published in numerous places already. Some of the designs have been seen in that context. But to have a really, let's say, engaging conversation with the people in the city, that's really the next step I'm really interested in because – Indeed, some thinking needs to be done. We can't merely react to every storm, um, you know, incrementally only. If there's going to be really a, a dramatic change in that the form has of uh, the city's form has to take, uh, we need to really be thinking more so about it from the perspective of planning it. So, I really want to have those conversations and see what people think are the best approaches we can take. 
Preston Scott Cohen is a professor of architecture at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. He led the course, The Future of Provincetown. Adam Sherman was a student in the course this semester and is a Master of Architecture candidate at the Graduate School of Design. I want to thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to see some photos of what the Harvard architecture students came up with for Provincetown's future, just go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll raise a glass to the 2020 presidential race and also to a great New England poet. Cheers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. It's one of the oldest cliche questions in politics. Which presidential candidate would you rather have a beer with? Polls show President Obama has been winning that likability contest, and he's been raising a lot of frosty mugs on the campaign trail, hoping to press his advantage over the teetotaling Mitt Romney. But in that race, a mere seven years ago, Barack Obama was most likely to order a Bud Light. Since then, there's been a national explosion of craft brewing, and New England is right at the center. In New Hampshire, there are more than 90 craft breweries, and they've joined diners, living rooms, and town halls as the go-to venues for FaceTime with the Democrats running for president. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropique reports. At Liquid Therapy in Nashua, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is squaring up for a beer pong throw. Oh, so close! She's got an audience of 50 or so voters who came out to this recent campaign stop inside an old firehouse-turned-brewery. After a few tries, Gillibrand sinks a ping pong ball into a half-empty plastic cup. Somebody get that? I'm going to post that one. I'm posting A few weeks later, the video of that same moment pops up in a campaign ad on my Instagram feed. If Kirsten makes this shot, it asks as she throws, will you donate a dollar today? Breweries and pubs are full of that kind of marketable photo op, and candidates are taking advantage of it. Gillibrand spokesman Evan Lukaski says these are good venues because they're casual and a way for the candidate to experience the state. She likes to mix it up. She likes to taste all of New Hampshire's great beers. I think this is our fourth or fifth brewery that we've been to. One even offered a beer named for Gillibrand, the Kirsten Weizen. Lukaski says today she's chosen one of Liquid Therapy's citrusy IPAs. She tends to enjoy the grapefruit-flavored beers. I'll let voters decide whether that's a good or bad thing. Perched on a stool, Stephen Mino is reserving judgment. He's drinking a lavender chamomile IPA sour while he watches the scrum. You know, it's nice to sip on a cocktail while everyone just like swarms and descends on these candidates and whatnot. Mino also saw California Senator Kamala Harris at a bar in Manchester. Another candidate who's hit the New Hampshire brew trail is John Hickenlooper. He ran his own brew pub in Colorado before getting into politics, and he talked that up during a stop at a busy bar in Newmarket in March. I was lucky I had a couple of friends, and we opened a restaurant that brewed its own beer. 
But not every campaign event fits into such a small, laid-back setting. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg had planned on visiting a brewery in Manchester last month, but the expected crowd got so big that he moved his event to the more spacious Courier Museum of Art. Back at Liquid Therapy, Chris Maloney of Massachusetts says the brewery setting is more his speed. This is actually very interactive, and I think everyone here will have a chance to meet the candidate, which is different. That kind of intimacy suits more than just the barflies. Candidates like Gillibrand enjoy it, too. I love this size because I can answer every question. I can take every selfie. No one feels unheard, and they all have a chance to have a real conversation with me. A real conversation and maybe a grapefruit or lavender beer to go with it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Rupik. A few months ago, NHPR's Sam Evans-Brown gave us a history of the complex maze of mountain biking trails that wind through northern New England. In Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, the mountain bike trail network has been expanded as a way to boost tourism in recent years. But now there's a growing trend in cycling that's using the already existing infrastructure of our rural woodlands, the gravel roads, which seems a bit bumpy. VPR's Bela Metzger takes us to the first big gravel bike race of the season. Some 20 miles into the Rasputitsa gravel race, on an unpaved road deep in the woods of the Northeast Kingdom, cyclists have already been through a lot. We've been uh, rained on, wet snowed on, seems like it's hovering just above freezing in places, but uh, it's uh, not in the bad day for riding a bike. That's John Doyle from Watertown, Massachusetts. You have a bigger smile than most people who are coming through right now. I guess I have some sort of problem where uh, where I, I smile really big, kind of no matter what the circumstances. Way of coping, I guess. <laughs> These tough conditions don't seem like they'd be pleasant to bike in, but they're actually part of the draw. The word Rasputitsa is Russian for the season when thawing snow makes unpaved roads difficult to pass. Here in Vermont, we call that mud season. 1,100 cyclists from around the world are in Burke to ride more than 40 miles of rural unpaved roads. The Rasputitsa website promises a, quote, insane, drop to your knees and cry, suffer fest. It is about challenging yourself. Of course, the course is hard, but also with the weather, the conditions, and yeah, it's pretty hardcore, but it's also really doable. Allison Tetrick is a pro rider from California. She's raced bikes around the world. And she says the Northeast Kingdom is world class. It's longer to get here from where I live than to go to Europe or a lot of places in the world. I mean, we're in a very remote location, but to me that makes it very special. It is beautiful out here and um, really tranquil, a lot of open space and really drastic landscapes and super bike friendly. Gravel cycling is a cross between road biking and mountain biking. Riders are decked out in spandex and ride fast bikes like you might see in the Tour de France. But their bikes have fatter tires, which allow them to navigate unpaved, rutted roads. Gravel grinding, as it's called by insiders, is all about getting out into nature for adventure. And it's one of the fastest-growing categories in cycling. Vermont is perfect for it. More than half of the state's roads are unpaved, and more than 6,000 miles of that is gravel. We didn't invent anything here. What we did is basically hone it to this one activity of riding on public dirt roads. That's Peter Vollers. He's been an advocate for gravel cycling in Vermont for almost 20 years. 
Voller says he first saw the potential of gravel when he was coaching young riders in Killington. We discovered when we were training how dangerous it was to be on the pavement. So I just one day I just said, guys, take a right turn. That turn onto a gravel road allowed the inexperienced riders to train away from cars and made their rides more social and enjoyable. Voller says Vermont's early infrastructural development, which included a dense network of rural roads, makes it perfect for gravel riding, especially the state's Class 4 roads, town highways that are no longer maintained. The oldest of these roads dates back to the beginning of the state. And another name for that in Vermont is the ancient roads. So these are mostly roads that have were laid out sometime in the early 1800s, but they fell into less use over time, so the towns didn't want to maintain them. And almost every town of Vermont has these roads. In 2006, the Vermont legislature passed Act 178, which required towns to map ancient roads for the first time. The maps have made outdoor enthusiasts more aware of access points to the backcountry. The Rasputitsa race has more than tripled in riders since it started six years ago. Co-founder Anthony Mocha says it's not a moneymaker, but it's a passion project that he hopes spills into the whole community. Skiing is all, all over. The mountain biking itself hasn't quite picked up yet, so it's a, a really in-between type of season. And in a weekend, there's nothing else going on. We bring in a bunch of people. It helps. This is actually a race that we look forward to pretty much all winter long. You know, it's like, you know, here it comes, here it comes, because it's just a huge boom. Johnny and Linda Lottie own Cafe Lottie, a big, airy coffee shop in East Burke. They say Rasputitsa weekend brings in as much revenue as an entire month during the off-season. Considering that it's April and there's nothing else going on, I think it's phenomenal what they've done to be able to promote this. I mean, it's really good for our economy. The Northeast Kingdom is already internationally known for its mountain biking. The Kingdom Trail Network drew 140,000 visitors in 2018. And now Burke area officials are in discussions about developing gravel cycling events at different times of year. Back at the Rasputitsa race, Melissa Kelstrom from Virginia rolls over the finish line almost four hours after the start. She's greeted by her boyfriend. Hi. Now I'm ready to cry. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good. So I'm awesome. so happy for you. Yeah. The race conditions were so tough this year, 200 riders didn't finish. Kelstrom is covered in mud. Gravel makes my heart happy. Why? <laughs> Everybody just crushed the course. We all died, and then we came out here, and we're still smiling. She already plans to register for next year's race. For the New England News Collaborative... I'm Bela Metzger. If you want to get involved in gravel grinding, there are races all spring and summer all across New England. We've got a link at nextnewengland.org. We're going to leave you with a short story about an estate sale, the kind you'd find in just about every small town on a spring weekend. This one, though, was a bit different. It drew a big crowd to Wilmot, New Hampshire, the home of former poet laureate of the United States, Donald Hall, who died in June of 2018. Hall grew up in Connecticut. He studied at Phillips Exeter Academy and Harvard University, and he later lived most of his life in New Hampshire. NHPR's Brita Green went to the estate sale and found some people waiting in line who gave us a reading of one of Hall's poems. Donald Hall's The Things. When I walk in my house, I see pictures 
bought long ago. Framed and hanging, de Kooning, Arp, Lorenzen, Henry Moore, that I've cherished and stared at for years. Yet my eyes keep returning to the masters of the trivial. A white stone, perfectly round, tiny lead models of baseball players. A cowbell, a broken great-grandmother's rocker, a dead dog's toy valueless, unforgettable detritus that my children will throw away. As I did my mother's souvenirs of trips with my dead father, Kodaks of kittens. And bundles of cards from her mother, Kate. That was a reading of The Things by Donald Hall. The poet's home was purchased by a New Hampshire couple who intend to preserve it. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts, Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter, too, at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Mike Tota and Graham Ball. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Wooden Dinosaur, Wren Kits, and the Neck Tones. Yeah, that's N-E-K tones, like the Northeast Kingdom. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.